Good morning. My name is Heather, and I am also one of the pastors here. Um, medieval harp, right? Yes, please. David and I met. Yeah, right. David and I met when we were both um, at a church in Portland, and Johnny just said to me, we're never going to shake those Portland roots, are we? I'm like, no, we're not. Bringing the harps in, people. Bringing the harps in all the way from Portland. Um, and appropriate, actually, to have a harpist as we are in um, a series specifically um, talking about lament and what it means to be a people who lament. And as Johnny said last week, um, he had these cards made, and many of you wrote laments as he was um, preaching last week and landed us in a very specific um, place and asked for your personal laments, and then we put them on this table, and as he communicated on Good Friday, we will shroud this table as a picture of um, the work of Christ in our midst, the work that he does as we lead up in these Lenten days towards Easter and Good Friday, the moment before we move into um, a season of celebration and resurrection. And I was talking to my friend Jenny on the phone yesterday. I've known Jenny for 32 years. She's as close as it gets to me, um, to a sister. And um, her son Jonah, she has three boys. They're all pretty epic, to be fair. One of them is a redhead and lives up to that head color. But um, the youngest one was coming in and out of the um, room while we were on the telephone. You know, I can hear his little voice in the background, and she'd say a few things, and then he'd toddle off, you know, and then like five or six minutes, he'd come back in, and I could hear his voice in the background. And at one point, um, I heard his voice, and the tone of his voice was like anger and desperation. And um, they're being mean. They're mean. You know, and it's like this pleading, desperate, angry um, voice. And he's basically saying to my friend Jenny, help me. Will you help me? Those people that are your other children are being mean to me. Won't you do something, mummy? And so I heard like this muffled because she kind of put the phone down and it was all muffly muffle. And then she comes back and we just carry on chit-chatting. And at the end of the conversation, I said to her, um, is Jonah okay? Because he did seem quite upset. I was like, is Jonah okay? And she's like, well, the part that you didn't hear was him being like, I hit them with this. <laughs> And I was like, oh, that's epic. She's like, I'm not sure whether it happened before or after they were being mean or if it was just like the whole situation. But he was still undaunted in his appeal. He came to his mum and he was bold. And he was bold and it kind of comes from this sense in his own little heart like of knowing who she is. Knowing that she's like, his advocate, that she's there for him, like that she's going to like go and take care of business, even if he's the one that's had the hand in making the business, even if he's at fault. He comes to find her. And today in the psalm of lament, we're going to hear the anger and the desperation of the people, the cry and their pleading for help 
Psalm 79 that we're in today, and I'll read it. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful, the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste its habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sin for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, we give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Wowza. They are angry. They are desperate. They feel helpless. And they direct the gravity of their emotion to God. And this is a real historical moment, like Johnny talked about last week in Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem. Their political infrastructure is overthrown. The temple, the heart of Judaism is completely destroyed. The walls become rubble all around. And the people are taken into exile. Basically, they're brought out of their own land and taken into Babylon by force. And we know why it happened. When we read the biblical text, we know why this moment happened in their history. God told them it would happen, that there would be consequences, that they consistently rejected God, that they exploited others, specifically the poor and the vulnerable, and then they chose their own way. They were defiant, and not just one time, they were perpetually Defiant over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so as I read this psalm, I was reading it and studying for it, and um, my initial response to this psalm is that I want to call them out. Because I read and I hear all of this anger and all of this desperation, I want to be like, yo, Israel, really? This is what you're going to be saying? Verses 5 and 7. Listen to this. Verses 5 to 7. 
How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Dude, pour your anger out on the nations that don't know you and the kingdoms that call upon your name. Don't be angry with us. Don't be all grumpy with us. You need to be angry at them. They don't know you. Just be angry at those other people. And you're like, really? That's, what you, that's how you're going to play right now? You're not liking the anger that is being directed to you, so you're going to point over there to the people that you're intended to bless, and you're going to ask God to pour out rage on them? That's your response. And then in verse, verse 9, they're like, Help us, O oh God, for the glory of your name. For your name's sake, won't you help us? And you're like, dude, you haven't cared about the glory of God or about his name or his reputation up until now. The temple was defiled by them. And now it's ruined by these other people and you're going to call on the character of God and his his reputation and his name? Now you care. Now you care about who God is? It's like, what? And then finally, straight up irony in verse 13. Like, how in the world do you read this in light of the Old Testament story? They say, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. We'll praise your name. And you're like, you haven't given thanks to God. You've complained, consistently complained. You've justified your actions, and you've actually been kind of annoying. And yet, here they are. They're angry and they're desperate, and they're pleading for help. And as we hear this psalm, there is an audacity in it that kind of verges on the absurd. Their boldness is mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And it's easy to feel this way about these people in this moment as you look at the whole narrative, and you're like, wow. It's also easy to feel this way about others when we see the horrendous things that they do. You're going to plead for mercy after you did that? You're going to expect compassion after you did that? It's actually easy to feel this way about ourselves too when we think about the things that we've done that have hurt other people. Which is why understanding lamentation is so important. It's so important for us to understand what the purpose of lamentation is. And there's an entire book, actually. The Psalms aren't the only places where we hear laments. There's an entire book Some of you may be familiar. It's called the Book of Lamentations. 
And, and the book itself is at the same moment. It's, it's a record of the same moment in his, Israel's history when Jerusalem is taken by Babylon. And it kind of sheds light for us. This whole book sheds light for us on what is going on um, in Israel's history. And what the Bible is telling us about lament and what these words specifically are calling out of us as, as they're calling out of them these deep, provocative, visceral emotions. And so I am going to have us watch a video on the book of Lamentation so that we can kind of place ourselves as we hear these words in this moment um, in the biblical text. So you can watch this and then I'll pop back up. The Book of Lamentations, it's a unique book in the Old Testament that contains five poems from an anonymous author who survived and is now reflecting back on the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem and the destruction and the exile that followed. Remember the whole story from the book of Second Kings. The fall of Jerusalem and the exile was the most horrendous catastrophe in Israel's history up to this point. So remember, God had promised Abraham the land. He'd given David victory to make Jerusalem Israel's capital. And from David came the royal line of kings. You had God's presence there in the temple, and that's where the priests maintained the rituals of Israel's worship. And after 500 years of all of this history, in the summer of 587 BC, the city fell to Babylon. It was all decimated and gone. And so the book of Lamentations is a memorial to the pain and confusion of the Israelites that followed this destruction. Now, the lament poems found here are not unique in the Bible. There's lots of them in the book of Psalms. And these biblical poems of lament, they do a number of things. They're a form of protest. They're a way of drawing everybody's attention, including God's attention, to the horrible things that happen in this world that should not be tolerated. They're a way of processing emotion. So in these poems, God's people vent their anger and dismay at the ruin caused by people's sin and selfishness. And these poems are a place to voice confusion. Suffering makes us ask questions about God's character and promises, and none of this is looked down on in the Bible. Just the opposite. These poems of lament give a sacred dignity to human suffering. And so these human words of grief that are addressed to God have now become part of God's word to his people. The design of these five poems is very intentional. It's part of the book's message. So chapters one through four are called acrostics, which means alphabet poems. Each poetic verse begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is made up of 22 letters. Now this very ordered and linear structure, it's in stark contrast to the disorder of the pain and the confused grief that's explored in these poems. So it's like Israel's suffering is explored A to Z and is trying to express something that is inexpressible. Chapters one and two each have one verse per letter, giving them a really similar design, but the themes are very different. So chapter one focuses on the grief and shame of a figure called Lady Zion. The poet personifies the city of Jerusalem as a widow, also called the daughter of Zion. And she sits alone. She's bereaved of her loved ones, devastated. No one comes to comfort her. It's a very powerful metaphor. And then Lady Zion speaks. She calls on the Lord to notice her fate. And through this image, the poet, he's showing that the city's destruction brought a level of psychological trauma on the Israelites that can only be expressed as the experience of a funeral and the death of a loved one. Chapter 2 focuses on the fall of Jerusalem and how it was a consequence of Israel's sin and was brought about by God's wrath 
which is a key word in this poem. Now, it's important to remember that in the Bible, God's wrath is not spontaneous, volatile anger. The biblical poets and prophets, they use this word to talk about God's justice. So Israel had entered a covenant agreement with God, and for centuries they've been violating it by worshiping other gods, perpetrating injustice, oppressing the poor. And so, yes, God is slow to anger, but he eventually does get angry at human evil, and he will bring his just anger in the form of punishment. In the case of Jerusalem, this involved allowing Babylon to come and conquer the city. And so this poem is acknowledging that God's wrath is justified, but this doesn't keep the poet from lamenting and asking God to show compassion once again. Chapter 3 breaks this design pattern by having three verses per letter, so it's the longest poem in the book. And the voice is that of a lonely man speaking out of his suffering and grief as a representative of the whole people. And what's interesting is that this chapter is full of language that's drawn from other parts of the Old Testament, from the laments of Job and from other important lament psalms and even from the suffering servant poems in Isaiah. And the poet sees his hardship as a form of God's justice, like chapter 2 said. But paradoxically, this is what gives the poet hope. And it leads him to offer the only hopeful words in the whole book. Because of the Lord's covenant faithfulness, we do not perish. His mercies never fail. They're new every morning. How great is your faithfulness, O God. So I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. So the poet reasons, if God is consistent enough to bring his justice on human evil, then he'll also be consistent with his covenant promise to not allow evil to get the final word. And so for this poet, God's judgment is the seedbed of hope for the future. Chapter 4 goes back to the same alphabet structure as chapters 1 and 2, and it's a vivid and disturbing depiction of the two-year siege in Jerusalem. And it contrasts how things used to be in Jerusalem of the past and how terrible they became in the siege. So children used to laugh and play in the streets, but now they beg for food. The wealthy used to eat lavish meals, but now they eat whatever they can find in the dirt. And the royal leaders used to be full of splendor, but now they're famished and dirty and unrecognizable. And the anointed king from the line of David has been captured and dragged away. So the poem's power comes from the shock of these contrasts, and it's exploring the depth of the suffering that Israel brought on itself. Now, the final poem is unique because it breaks the design pattern. It's the same length as all of the other alphabet poems, but the alphabet order is gone. It's like the poet can't hold it together anymore and his grief has exploded back into chaos. The poem is a communal prayer for God's mercy. Israel begs God not to ignore their suffering or abandon them. And the poem offers a long list of all of the different kinds of people who were devastated by the fall of the city. They ask God not to forget these people, and they lament on behalf of others, giving voice to their pain. Suffering in silence is just not a virtue in this book. God's people are not asked to deny their emotions, but voice their protest, to vent their feelings, and pour it all out before God. The book ends with something of a paradox. The poet acknowledges that God is the eternal king of the world, but also that Israel's circumstances make them feel like God is nowhere to be found. And so the final words of the book leave this tension totally unresolved. It asks, unless you've totally rejected us, and the book ends. The poet doesn't offer a nice, neat conclusion, much like our own experiences of pain and suffering.
The story of the Bible doesn't end here, but this very important book shows us how lament and prayer and grief are a crucial part of the journey of faith of God's people in a broken world. And that's what the book of Lamentations is all about. So while we've been in the Psalms talking about lament, as you can see from this moment, lament is a much broader and bigger um, practice in the life of the people of faith. And this specific moment is corollary to this psalm. What is happening in their lives and in Israel and the siege, and you see even in that book, like the depth of their suffering and their pain. And as Tim said in the video, suffering in silence is not a virtue. We are not asked to deny our emotions, but to voice in protest to show up wholeheartedly before each other and before God. We can vent our feelings and pour them out before him. Again, that silence is not a virtue. And so when they say, they've defiled your temple, how long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Do not remember against us our former iniquities, why should the nation say, where is their God? This is not something that should be silenced. What do we make of the pain and suffering and anger and confusion that they're expressing? Isn't it directly related to their own behaviors? Yes, it is. And they let themselves feel the emotion of it. They, they allow themselves to lament, and lament allows it to be painful. The pain is real even in the midst of their own culpability, even in the midst of their own culpability and wrongdoing. The pain is real. And the beauty of lament is that it doesn't just draw these clean lines, like this is when you get to feel sorrow, this is when you shouldn't. This is when you get to feel confusion and you have no right to confusion now. That's just not how it works. In human pain and suffering, there's no partiality there. There was a gentleman, I was parking outside, or I was sitting outside the office one day, and um, there's a gentleman, and he came and he was looking at all of these doors. He had a backpack and he was just knocking on all, or like kind of poking his head in the windows, you know? And I was sitting in my car, and as he was walking back, he saw me. And um, he's looking a little rough, and so he kind of came up to me, so I rolled down my window, and um, he went into this story about the last two years of his life. And it was really intense, his story. Things that he talked about relationally that were fractured because of some of the choices that he'd made. Things that had happened with his wife and his child and another woman and where he'd been and thing, the substances that he'd been using. And he went on for quite a long time talking about this whole thing and his last two years and the fractures and the dissonance and the pain that he was feeling. Um, and then he looked at me and he said, he looked, he, you know, before he was kind of like just telling the story. And I felt like I was kind of watching him tell the story. And it was like we were both watching this movie of his 
life. And then he looked at me, and he looked at me, and he said, and it's all my fault. And he looked at me again, and he said, it's all my fault. And I just looked back at him, and I said, you know what? It still sounds really, really hard. And in that moment, his eyes like filled with tears. And I made an assumption about that man. I just assumed he would ask me for something or that there would be some kind of exchange. But in that moment, his eyes filled with tears and he just held my gaze for a moment and then he walked away. His pain was real. Even if it was his own fault. His pain was real. The other day, I was in the car with a friend of mine, and I asked her if I could share this story. Um, She said it was fine. We were sitting in the car, and um, we were talking, and as we were talking, um, we were kind of having this conversation, and she did something that was hurtful. And she caught herself, and she looked at me, and she acknowledged that what she'd done had been hurtful, and she asked me to forgive her. And then um, it was kind of this beautiful moment, and I thanked her. And then she started to cry. So I asked her, I'm like, you know, the tears, what are the tears about? And she said that it wasn't the first time that she'd done that this week. And that she felt sad about it. And that there was some frustration at herself. And I could hear it in what she was saying. It was like the shame of like, is this who I am? Is this who I am? We're really good at writing ourselves off in moments like these. When our past choices or our current actions lead to painful situations, it's my own fault. This is who I am. And in those moments, there's this feeling that washes over us, and that feeling is called shame. And it is in these moments when that feeling like comes over us that we have a temptation to isolate ourselves to shut down or to get mean. And we think in those moments that other people are better off without us. We no longer believe in those moments that we're worthy of love or that we're worthy of belonging or that we're worthy of connection. So we hide we shut down. And it makes sense because we do it as a society as well. And I was struck this week, I was looking at a few things online and this article popped up and it was an article about, from the New York Times on solitary confinement. And I was like, oh, 
this is a really fascinating moment for me to be reading articles on solitary confinement. And um, in the corrections population, they have a name for um, soli solitary confinement. It's called RFD, removed from um, population, direct population. And when you're put into solitary confinement, you're put into a space that's about as big as a parking lot. Like a parking lot, that's massive. Like <laughs> a parking spot, you know, like one individual parking spot. And you're put in there for hours. And there's a toilet in there, and there is a bed, and it's basically just all steel. And there's a lot of research that's been done on solitary confinement, and um, they've tried to do reforms to say that you're not actually allowed to stay in solitary confinement for more than 15 um, days, kind of mandated now as the UN looks at it. But it's not, they're not policies that are binding or required federally, and so a lot of prison um, populations still have to deal with solitary confinement. And as I was looking at it, I was reading from this executive director of the Department of Corrections from Colorado, and before he um, went the direction that was encouraged them, he said the average inmate in Colorado was spending 23 months in solitary. And he said there were some individuals that had spent 23 years in solitary. Basically, what we've said is your actions are so bad that society is better off without you. You are no longer worthy of human connection. We do that as a society. You're at fault. And so we push you away. And that's what shame would like us to believe too. That the things that we've done or the things that we have left undone, the things from our past or things from our present, that would let us believe that we are not worth human consumption. And that is not the story of this text. It's not the invitation of lament because lament says that no matter what we are capable of, we need to believe that we're not abandoned, that we're not left alone, that there is hope for us, which is why the message of the Bible is so powerful. In the middle of that book of Lamentations, like chapter 3, we heard that message of hope. In the midst of all of this chaos, this is what this person says. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast, Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. In the midst of all of that chaos, this is what is called out this declaration that stands boldly in the middle of that situation. And it's the same in this psalm, like right in the middle here. Do not remember us, verse 8, 
our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of our name. Deliver us and atone for our sins, for your name's sake. In this moment of their history, in their own sense of culpability and guilt, they are not pointing to themselves. Not the good that they've done, nor the bad that they have done. They immediately point and appeal to who God is. Their boldness comes from knowing who he is. That he's merciful. And he's compassionate. He's the one that will help, who will deliver, and who will save. It's like my friend's son. Giving themselves the freedom, the audacity to approach God. And what drives them and what should drive us to him is knowing who he is. Maybe you don't know who he is. Do you know who he is? Maybe you've forgotten who he is. Have you forgotten who he is? Maybe you were misinformed about who he is. Because there are, I mean, there are many people who would communicate things that are true about God that are not true, that we are supposed to hide from him, that we can't show up as our true selves, that there are expectations that he places over us. And I am sorry if you have experienced from a preacher or a pastor or a church and heard things about God that are not true, or an institution that is religious, that has tied weight on you, I am sorry. Were you misinformed about who God is? why the season of Lent is so important. It's so powerful as we make our way to Good Friday and to the celebration that is Easter. Because we see who God is in Jesus. That he doesn't leave us alone. That in his compassion, in his mercy, he comes close and he is present with us. He does not abandon us. Even in the suffering and pain of our own making. Jesus never abandons us. He is compassionate and he is merciful and he always forgives when we call out to him. And there's a word that's used in verse 9 of Psalm 79, and the word is atone. Atone for our sins, they cry out. Atone for them. 
And that word atonement um, basically means forgiveness, but it's tied to the sacrificial system in the temple that is now destroyed. And it was basically provision for humans to experience forgiveness for guilt. A covering of shame. And Jesus enters into the mess. And he spends 40 days in the wilderness. And then in his own sacrificial act on the cross, he reaches towards us. He reaches towards us offering forgiveness for guilt and he covers our shame. There's no solitary confinement. He wants to always declare over us that he loves us. That he wants connection to us and that we can have belonging in him, even if the suffering and pain that we currently feel is of our own making. Christ comes with compassion and with mercy and declares that he forgives us and calls us to closeness with himself. Always. Over and over and over and over again. And the challenge for us is to receive that forgiveness. To abandon shame and to embrace the embrace of Christ. And this table, this table is a reminder of that every week. That Jesus' compassion and mercy is in our midst. That he'll never abandon us. That he'll never leave us. He won't forsake us. He will heal. And he'll embrace. But it doesn't mean the pain is gone. We feel the pain of sin. And so it's not about making excuses for ourselves or making excuses for others. And it's not that we don't have to do things to make amends or try and find support and grace and context to where we can move into change. And lament is part of that. Lament is part of grounding us and rooting us in what it means to receive grace and to be people that can participate in new ways of being. Lament keeps us connected both to God and to ourselves and to each other. Which is why it's such an important thing that we learn as a community how to lament. Which is why we've continued to be on this journey of lament together. Because it doesn't do us any good to shut down or to hide. Even in the suffering of our own making. And so today, you'll see around you um, these cards that Johnny made. We're going to continue using them today. So today on these cards, what I want you to lament is the pain that you have caused. The ways 
I want you to lament the ways that you have contributed to pain and sorrow and hardship. And that could be at a, in a large level, like as a society, the ways that you've contributed to kind of systematic injustice and pain. But I also want you to lament the ways that you've caused or do cause personal pain to others to yourself, to God, to yourself. Maybe it's the lies that you believe, the things that you tell yourself, the, the way that you are critical and violent towards yourself. Lament that. Perhaps it's something that you do consistently with your spouse or with a child or with a parent. Lament that. Maybe it's an action or a behavior. Lament that. And what I want you to know is that the words that you write or the words that you say, those are holy words. Missio, they're holy words. And they're held by Christ who covers shame and forgives guilt and calls us always back into belonging and connection and our own belovedness in him. And it doesn't mean that the pain will necessarily be gone. But it does mean that no matter what you've done, from the past, in the present, what you will do in the future, that Christ always has this table set for you. It's always set for you. And there's always space at this table for you. And in Christ, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate you from him. Nothing that you've done and nothing that you will do. And as I was driving here, I was listening to a Mumford and Sons. Um, and the song that played while I was driving here was the words at the end. I was like, this is the blessing for the people today, straight from a British band. And so as you lament your pain and then you come to this table, don't shut down. Or I would invite you not to shut down. That God forgives you. Forgive yourself. Forgive others. And as Mumford says, before you leave, before you leave, Missio, you must know, you must know that you are beloved. And before you leave, before you leave, remember that he is with you. I'll just hold some silence with you, let you think about your lament. I'll pray and then the band will come up and then you can feel free to put those laments on this ta table and remember your beloved and that he is with you.
Jesus, I thank you that then there's nothing that we have to hold back from you. That silence is not a virtue. That you invite us to lament and to even lament the things that, the messes that we've made, the things that we've done that contribute to the pain of this world and to the pain of the relationships that we're in or from the past and that you don't ask us to hide or to shut down. You don't communicate to us that we don't belong with you or with each other. And so I pray, I pray, Holy Spirit, that as everybody in this room takes the bread and puts it in their mouth and feels um, the blood, that there would be the wine or the juice, I mean, that there would be this picture of like your presence with us. That you call us into laments and owning the things that we do so that we can find freedom. Freedom from shame, forgiveness from guilt, and the ca capacity to live alive. And so I thank you for your people, and I thank you that as a comforter, you come to bring comfort even in these hard spaces that we might have created. Jesus, I pray at the end of the day that everybody in here would walk out knowing their belovedness. And they would know that you've promised never to forsake, never to abandon, and that you are always alongside. Maybe we are, may we be a people that cry out to help to you, to deliver us, to rescue us, understanding that you are a God of compassion and mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.